You're listening to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone in Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Jeremy McNair, and I'm the worship pastor here at Cornerstone. And today I'm joined by our lead pastor, Pastor Bobby Harrell. And together we are going to start a whole new deep dive into the life and chronological order of Jesus's ministry. These conversations are not meant to be just two people talking in a room. We would love for you to take part in what happens in these conversations. So if you ever have any questions or content that you think you'd like to contribute, we'd love for you to text those to 817-809-3040. We take all of the best and most applicable content. We work them into our conversations and what you want to hear may end up in a future podcast episode. It's such a blessing that you've tuned in and we welcome you to season two now of Cornerstone Conversations. Well, season one was all about the Old Testament. Yeah. And we started by using the book of Hebrews chapter 11, where the author starts saying, hey, we have this great legacy of people of faith. The hall of faith, even. And so we went all the way back using the author's guidance. So we went a little nuts, actually. Well, we started just to do the names listed in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. But then the author of Hebrews gets kind of vague. So, you know, he... For time fails me. Otherwise, I could talk about... So many other so people. Many people. Well, time didn't fail us. Yeah, we have plenty. There's we had, a lot of Sundays oh, in the we years we found out. And so we went ahead and expanded that and used it as a teaching moment that would be instructive for our church to really wrap their minds around what stories the Old Testament telling through the characters' lives that are being presented. You know what I loved about that series was, you know, I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Christian home and I... I knew I'm familiar with many of the stories here. I'm familiar with Old Testament characters, but I wasn't really well versed in the takeaways that I was supposed to have now as a modern reader. How is my life anything like David's? How is my life anything like Samson's or Deborah's or any of the people who come up as these, you know, pinnacle leaders of the faith? And I think it was really revealing and really helpful for our church family to go back and do a deep dive study into these Old Testament characters and really learn that the God of the Old Testament is still the God, not just the New Testament, but of today as well. That's right. And as you said, perhaps most people have at least a superficial understanding of who Abraham and Noah and Adam and Moses and Joseph and Daniel. and these As far as are. they would have come up in a Sunday school story. It's one thing to know who these people are. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to come away with the right conclusion of what the Bible's telling you about them. That's true because you are not them. And you're not supposed to be them. And you're not supposed to be them. And as a matter of fact, most of the people in the Old Testament are not being shown to you as role models of parenting, no. marriage, not role models of how to rule properly. The kings are disasters. The parents are disasters. The marriages are disasters. The families are disasters. Worship's a disaster. So the author must be saying something else to us other than be like these people. Right. For the most part, the stories of the Old Testament are very much snapshots. They capture everything without a filter. And it's all of its broken, all of its human brokenness. Right. And because of that, though, we're supposed to look at them and see how good God is to broken people, not to see how we are to replicate broken models of broken people. Matter of fact, I could make the argument. I think we did pretty well in those 40 weeks by saying even the people who are being lifted up to you as people who have faith still tell the greater story that planet earth and humanity is hopelessly broken. Mm -hmm. 
And unless God comes down and intervenes again in a way that's as significant as the creation in Genesis, yeah. unless God does something really big, this thing can't get turned around. And so that's the story really we said the Old Testament saying to us, mm-hmm. not that we should look at these people and say, oh, we don't want to be anything like them. There is something good about these people. In many of the cases, one of their attributes is incredibly God-centric and faith and faith-filled. Faith. These yeah. are people who have faith. Right. And it's showing you that even though they're a train wreck, they still have faith mm-hmm. and that's going to work so that God can work this mess out. Yeah. And so sometimes I'm frustrated with myself mm. that I don't have it more together. And I think if anything, it helps me understand myself a little better. God's not saying, you know, I need your perfection. He's saying, I need your faith. I'm going to send Jesus to fix it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to fix it. You lean into Christ and let the spirit transform your life. And we're going to get it worked out. Yeah. But it's only going to get worked out through Christ. And that's the story of the Old Testament saying, the law can't save you. You can't keep it. Mm-hmm. These people are not the perfect God followers. No. They're very flawed God followers. But God loves us. He remembers his covenant to his people. Trust in God. He's going to send somebody to fix it. And that really is the story of the Old Testament. And that's exactly where the New Testament begins, is God sending someone to fix it. So, yeah, Christmas is the beginning of the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Right. So it leads to a thing called the New Covenant, which is the final covenant that structures the Bible and tells us what God's doing here on earth is being completed now in the new covenant. Mm -hmm. And so we took some weeks, obviously, because of the November, December season to talk about Christmas Mm -hmm. things. Yeah. You know, you need to talk about shepherds and mangers and and stars. Capture the moment. Absolutely. All of this stuff. And so we've told the Christmas story for some weeks here Mm -hmm. at Cornerstone, which those messages are out there. People can listen to those. And that's a story we're fairly familiar with. But the New Testament authors now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are going to give us information about who Jesus is. Yeah. So our study now, really from here to Easter, is going to be in the Gospels. Yeah, and that really is the trajectory that we're taking now. And, you know, the Old Testament series, we had kind of limitless time. We could just go as long as we wanted to. At this point, we really are trying to follow a trajectory of telling the story of Christ through Easter, through the Resurrection Sunday. And we're going to do that by splitting up and segmenting his life into seven major periods. Let me just overview those a little bit. We'll talk about kind of why we're structuring it this way. We're starting off with the birth and childhood. So the birth, we kind of already went through when we did our Christmas series. Childhood, we're going to spend a little bit of time on actually the Sunday. Then Jesus goes into the second phase, which is preparing for ministry. And this is where you find him being tempted. This is where you find him being baptized. But really before he comes out with the third phase, which is his public ministry. This is where you see a lot of the acts and miracles. And when you think about the bulk of Jesus' life, this is where we're going to spend a lot of times in this public ministry phase. After that, Jesus takes his journey to Jerusalem, and that's a whole different section. We know we're heading to the, the climax of the story now. Exactly. So he makes his way to Jerusalem, then he's in Jerusalem. This is stage number five. Then we see the whole Passion Week saga really where he goes to his suffering and his death and then you see the glorious final chapter in his resurrection and ascension but what's going to happen is there's a lot of content there to cover right and we don't have quite enough sundays to do it 
So what we're going to do is try to cover some of the missing pieces in these Cornerstone Conversations. Right. So it's really important for the listener, if all you do is listen to Cornerstone Conversations, I'd also encourage you to listen on the same podcast feed for our Sunday morning sermon series, because the two of them together are going to be really hand in hand in telling the complete story of right. Christ and Jesus' life here and his ministry on earth. Right. Well, it, you know, we talked about the past few weeks about Christmas, and we talked about how the Magi, the wise men, don't arrive until after Christmas. It's really not a Christmas story. No, it's a two-year-later story. So yeah. I need to just put that out there. And that's a sermon everyone should listen to because you have to ask yourself, why are the Magi in the Gospels? In the account, yeah. Why is this even a thing? Mm -hmm. It's here on purpose, okay? But before we get to that, I needed to do that sermon because it's Christmas-ish. Yeah. People expect it to be a Christmas sermon. It's even the though, Christmas card problem. Even you though we've the wise men it's with not, it. a, not a Christmas sermon per se. As you said, we want to fill in some details that we won't have time to cover in the formal worship service messages. And one of those that I'd like to just kind of put out there today is between the time Christ was born mm -hmm. in Bethlehem and the wise men, the Magi, arrived a couple of years later, yeah. one scene is a manger you know, traditionally we think of a barn-like setting right. or whatever and shepherds and the birth of Christ and all that. The other scene is the child Jesus in a house, the Bible says, yeah. and the Magi come and bow down and worship and give him treasure. But between those two events that in that period, the Bible records something that happens mm -hmm. with the baby Jesus, which is never in the Christmas story. No. So in other words, what I'm saying is the Magi make the Christmas cards, but there's two characters introduced in the New Testament. Yeah, we have details of Jesus's life that happened before the Magi are ever on the scene. That's correct. We have two characters, one named Simeon, an old man, mm -hmm. and one named Anna, that's in the Greek or in the Hebrew would be Hannah, an old woman. Yeah who make cameo appearances in the story of Jesus. And the New Testament writers expect, mm -hmm. one, that you know the Old Testament, and two, that you understand their works are a continuation. They are bringing the Old Testament story up to date. Right, because the characters of the New Testament knew the Old Testament. Correct. Anyone that's involved in the New Testament has very if you say has to, a very good understanding of what happens in the Old and Testament. And if you say scripture, something like that, right. to a New Testament person. They're looking back at the Pentateuch. They're <laughs> correct, the writings of Moses, right? or they're looking at Isaiah or Jeremiah or mm -hmm. Daniel. And, and looking forward to the Messiah that was foretold by the prophets. Correct. And that's why the story of the Old Testament is so important that you understand the Old Testament story has God's voice saying, yeah. I'm going to fix this. Mm -hmm. I will send my messenger. I will send my servant. I will send a savior. I will send a king. And that's really the key word. And my king is going to come and he's going to restore glory. He's going to bring peace. He's going to bind up the brokenhearted. Yeah. He's going to set the captives free. And he's going to come and set this mess right mm -hmm. once again. Yeah. Okay. When the New Testament writers begin writing now, they're saying it's happening mm -hmm. or it's happened yeah. before our eyes. And they're going to tell you the story of how all that was talked about in the Old Testament has now happened yeah. in the arrival of Jesus Christ. So now there's two characters. Yeah, so Jesus is born, and then eight days later, he's just barely over a week old. So let me just read a little bit yeah. of what the book of Luke says. 
it says, so Jesus is born. Then Luke 2, 21, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that the writer is going to set up for you in these gospels is how Mary and Joseph are very obedient to God. Yeah. That is one of the motifs that's being laid out. We don't know tons about Joseph. We don't know tons about Mary, but what we do know, they are always obeying the will of the father. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to see that thread woven in here. Yeah. And so part of what it meant to be obedient to God was to follow the law. And so there were some ritual laws that required purification times, mm -hmm. a time to circumcise, and then a formal naming ceremony. American culture is a bit unique in that we name the baby like 30 seconds after it's delivered yeah. in the hospital, and it gets recorded on official documents and Before social security, you yeah. all, all this stuff. Here's a good example. Jeremy, you and I have been to Asia mm -hmm. doing work and had people walk up to us who are our disciples or you know whatever, who have now had children and hand us a child, mm -hmm. sometimes a year old. At times, yeah. And say, here's my baby, it was born, I haven't seen you in a while, would you please name my baby? Right. You had this experience on your last the, visit. The stress that comes up on a person when they're told to name someone else's baby. Yeah. Because especially in those Eastern cultures, the baby's name means a great deal. It's a big deal. Here, you know, I don't want to sound too critical, but people just make up names for their babies. Correct. Correct. In Eastern cultures, names have very weighty meaning That's and significance. Right. So to be given the responsibility of naming someone else's child, you really feel the burden of responsibility. Nowhere do names mean more than in this biblical Jewish right. culture. And a lot of them mean God is faithful or God is some, you know, yeah. especially all these names that start with J, like mm -hmm. Jeremiah and Jehoshaphat and Jehoiakim. Every Joshua, they're all a reference to God. Yeah. God, God, God will provide. God, God will faithful, sustain. Sure. God is Yeah. And so in the case of Jesus, when the angel appeared both to Mary and Joseph and said, you're going to have a baby. The sex is already predetermined. This is going to be God's son. And this will be his name. And this will be his name because mm -hmm. he will save his people from their sins. Yeah. Now, again, so when you see them going into the temple for the circumcision ceremony and the naming ceremony and naming the boy Jesus is an act of obedience. Obedience. Yeah. It's what you're supposed to take away from the reading. Mm -hmm. Okay. The author has set you up to see, here's why God chose these people. Yeah. If you're going to have somebody raise your kid, you want Mary and Joseph yeah. to raise your kid. These are wonderful, wonderful, loving, obedient, devoted God followers. Yeah. And they're going to do right by Jesus. Right. Okay. Then it goes on. So when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, meaning Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, Jerusalem's nearby Bethlehem, so just a little jaunt over there. Mm -hmm. As it is written in the law, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Or dedicated. Correct. Yeah. And to offer a sacrifice in the keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Two turtle doves. No, it's not, not that. <laughs> what this is, is the author wants you to see something else. Luke has very carefully, without insulting anyone, told you they're poor. Mm. So now the law required that you offer every firstborn male as holy to the Lord. Okay. So when you have this son, you're to go to the temple yeah. 
and you are to redeem him. It's kind of the language they would use by offering a lamb. Yeah. Here's what the law actually says. You're to redeem him with a lamb, offer a lamb as a sacrifice. But if the family is too poor, then you can offer a pair to turtle doves, to yeah. pigeons. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So Luke has told you something. They live now in Bethlehem mm-hmm. where Joseph has had to restart his carpenter business. Yeah. And he's trying to provide for his new family of three now yeah. and feed everybody and get a roof over their heads and all of this. We're only eight days into the birth and then into the purification, right? So we're just, our little family just started. Yeah. Now that stress mm-hmm. to start your new family unemployed and have to relaunch your business And so he starts his business and part of what the law says to do is you've got to go make a sacrifice, but the sacrifice is, I wouldn't say expensive, but it's an expense. And when you're a family of just starting out a newborn baby, you know how expensive a newborn baby is. Oh, it's unbelievable. So the author has very politely made a little reference here that says when Mary and Joseph went for this ceremony, they couldn't afford a lamb. Mm-hmm. Now, this is fascinating. And this is why, you know, the again, the wise men, the Magi are not here yet. Right. They have not yet arrived because they're bringing something when they come. We'll talk about it again in future moment here. Mm-hmm. They're bringing treasure for a reason. But Mary and Joseph don't have treasure yet and don't yeah. know it's on the way. Yeah, sure. All they know is we're to trust God and take care of God's son who he sent into the world, who's going to be the king, who's going to save us all. Mm -hmm. Well, they need to obey the law. And so they have to get the bargain sacrifice. A pair of turtle doves could not only be purchased cheaply in a real pinch, they could be caught. Yeah, true. You could catch them. Yeah. Go to any major city of Europe and grab a few in any public park. And you're saying, but regardless, (laughs) they're being obedient there. That's the big point. They're being obedient. They're doing exactly as the law would command them to do because they want to make sure that they are obedient to the Lord. They're being obedient. We know they're not wealthy, right? They are struggling financially. And then this is what the Bible says next. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting. So you got to picture an old man in your mind. Mm -hmm. He goes up to the temple all the time. He's devout and he's waiting for something to happen. Yeah. I think that describes the condition of a lot of people historically. Mm-hmm. They were waiting for God to do something. Yeah. 400 years of silence. There's been no prophet. Has God heard our prayers? Does he know the mess we're in? Yeah. Does he understand the condition the world's in? Is God abandoned his human project here? Right. He's waiting. You know what I love about Simeon's story? There's a beautiful comfort where the Holy Spirit himself inform Simeon that he will not die until he sees the Messiah. That's a very personal promise that God made to this man. Right. So that's what I'm saying. Simeon should be in our nativity scene more than the Magi. Yeah, because for whatever reason, God thought that his presence in the story was important, so much so that he sustained his life until he was able to see the baby Jesus. Can God answer our prayers in such a unique and individual way that God can say to us, Hey, I'm going to do this for you. I see your faithfulness. I appreciate you. Listen, I'm going to do this for you. Right. And the answer is yes, because you see it right here on the text. Mm -hmm. And so Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Yeah. Now I need to explain that's consolation means comfort to console, to comfort. You see this in a lot of Christmas songs, even Israel strength and consolation. 
the writer wants you to hear the Old Testament prophets. Now, Isaiah especially, chapter 40, verse 1, 49, 13, 51, 3, 61, mm-hmm. all over the book of Isaiah, the prophet keeps saying, comfort, I could say in KJV better, comfort ye, Comfort ye. Comfort ye, my yeah. people. It's written into Handel's Messiah. Yeah. This comfort motif that God sees the mess and misery humanity is in, and he's not going to leave us in darkness, but he's sending light. Mm-hmm. He's going to send comfort. So when it says Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel, Israel's in a mess. All right, now here's where I have to pause and say, what is Israel? Israel to God is a covenant people. Mm-hmm. Israel was more than Abraham's DNA in God's mind. Yeah. It was anyone who would enter into a relationship with God, but it was made with Abraham. Yeah. It was to a DNA people. Yeah. And he said, there is no nation that'll follow me, Abraham. I'll make a nation and you guys will be my covenant people. Now the covenant from this moment on in the story, well, the prophets have already mentioned it, but everybody's not paying attention. Let me say that. Mm -hmm. But from this point forward in the story, the Gentiles are going to get woven into the story more and more now. Well, and this becomes a major theme and thematic element of the entire New Testament is this correction of you think it's just to Israel. It's not just to Israel. Right. Because Israel is so much greater. Paul writes whole essays on this. Yeah. Israel is not about Abraham's DNA. Mm -hmm. Israel is about a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And so the world's in a mess. God's sending his fixer. Here's an old man waiting for the fix to arrive. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit, as you said, has made personal assurances to this man that you will live to see God's king arrive on planet Earth and know that the fix is about to happen. And so he's waiting for the comfort of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him and it had been revealed to him by the spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah moved by the spirit. He went into the temple courts. Now, enter Joseph and Mary with baby Jesus into the scene. Yeah. When the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what was the custom of the law. Again, to be obedient. It's woven in, so you'll see it. Simeon, and I'm just trying to imagine this at church, what I'm about to say. This would never really happen in our modern churches, but Simeon runs across the temple courtyard. Yeah. Holy Spirit has said, ding, 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 there's the king. There's the baby king right there. Yeah. And Simeon runs across the courtyard. Let me read it in the text. Simeon took him, Jesus, in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Wow. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. So all this, all nations now is bringing the Gentiles in a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel, the child's father and mother marveled. Now, so I'm imagining here's one of our young couples, Jeremy, they have their firstborn child a week ago, a week ago, a week ago, they show up at church and someone they don't know runs across the foyer, snatches the baby out of their arms and Mm -hmm. holds him up like the Lion King and starts saying, the king is here, the king is here. You know, I'm shocked the parents aren't freaking out is what I'm shocked at. Yeah. There's a lot of human tension you need to read into this. Right. It's recorded by Luke as the parents marveled at what was being said. 
like, wait, we're just, I'm just like a poor carpenter and we had a baby in a barn and I'm struggling to make ends meet. And all we've got is two turtle doves and we're nobodies, Yeah, you know? Well, you have to think about it too. Mary and Joseph, yes, they've been told exactly who this baby is. They know that he is the Messiah, but they've also been parents now for one week. They're probably tired out of their minds. They are probably completely confused on what their relationship dynamic looks like. There's a lot of, again, really human elements here. Yeah. And this was probably exactly the pick me up that they needed to be validated. This is all true. We're not crazy people who we see, didn't imagine who those see angels. you know, angels in the night. This is real. And this is the Messiah. That's and I, I don't think they ever doubted that, but I just have to be empathetic for a second and think of myself as a parent to a one week old and know that that kind of validation would be just so vindicating and heartwarming and encouraging and all the things that Mary and Joseph probably needed in that moment. Which tells you a lot about God's understanding of the human condition. Yeah. He knows we need validation. Right. I even could put this on a kind of a salvation level modern day. When people receive Christ as their savior, sometimes a week later, they look in the mirror and say, is, that, is it real? Yeah. Did that really happen? Yeah. Are my sins really forgiven? I'm God's child now. Right. right. And so God will do things in our lives to validate yeah. and to give us the assurances we need. Well, and I see this all the time. Recently, someone told me a story about, this is completely unrelated, but where they tithed for the first time, where they gave to the church, they gave to the ministry of yeah. God to, to further the mission and the spread of the gospel. And they were really encouraged by that, but it was a, a strain on their finances to do so. And within the next month, that money that they had given to the purpose of the ministry had already returned to them and then some. Perfect. And it was like the encouragement that they needed to do the thing that God commanded right. them to do was all that they needed then to sustain them to, to continue say, in there. This is yeah, real. To continue then in obedience. Our obedience does matter to God and right. he rewards it. And look, it's Mary and Joseph, while being obedient to God, are validated and vindicated and feel encouraged that, hey, what you're doing is good and what you're doing is right. This man, Simeon, this old man, makes a bit of a prophetic statement here. Mm -hmm. And we read verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said. Then Simeon blessed them. So now blessing to the parents. And he said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. A sign that will be spoken against mm -hmm. so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Mm. I've got mixed emotions. Yeah. And so he's like, this child is, let me use his word, destined for something big. Big. Yeah. This is as big as the creation. This is new creation. The kingdom of God is coming on earth. Heaven and earth are about to reunite in this man, God's son. This yeah. is big. Now, here's the interesting wording. Now, you have to remember who's writing. It's Luke. Yeah. Luke wrote two volumes. He wrote the book of Luke, volume one, mm -hmm. and he wrote Luke volume two, which is we call the book of Acts. Yeah. So Luke wrote two volumes. I want to let the listener grab onto this if you're new to Interestingly to enough, as far as percentage goes, he wrote... The majority of the New Words. Testament. Yeah, word-wise, word count-wise. We wise. think it's Paul. It's not yeah. actually, Paul wrote yeah. the most books in the New Testament, but yeah. as far as the word count, Luke actually wrote the bulk yeah. of your New Testament. Whoever laid out the New Testament, to me, I always thought it would have been helpful to have like Matthew, Mark, John, or John. I would have done John first. John. But I didn't do or it. Mark. But yeah. Mark was really written first. Yeah. Anyway, but to have somehow have 
Luke acts yeah. be together part one and part two with like, like you have first Corinthians, second Corinthians or yeah. something yeah. where you could make a little more clarity about that. So now Luke is writing the words of Simeon and he's written it in this way. Jesus is set for two big things, the falling of one group and the rising of another group. Yeah. Now this is exactly what Luke is trying to tell you. The book of Luke is about God's covenant people living in a time when the Messiah comes Mm -hmm. and they reject him and crucify him. Yeah. The falling of many. And because of it, Israel's doomed. I mean, Jerusalem is doomed. The Romans are going to crush Israel. Happened in 70 AD, just, you know, in during the lifetime of the apostles. Right. Okay. The book of Acts, volume two, is about the rising. It's the response to that. That is correct. Yeah. So... When Simeon gives a little prophecy here, sometimes prophecies don't take a, a hundred years to happen. Yeah. Sometimes it's happening about before 30. your eyes. Yeah. And so what he's saying is this is God's son and he's destined for greatness, but first he'll first be rejected. Yeah. And we could lament that, but that's the way we're saved. Mm-hmm. This is the tension we're held in. Yeah. They're going to crucify him to be sure, but that's also the way our sins are going to get paid for, forgiven. And we're going to be reconciled to God through his sacrifice. And then when the book of Acts opens, volume two, watch the church explode. Watch the spirit be poured out and Christianity be dispersed through the nations. Watch Paul take off to Europe and the churches start exploding. Mm -hmm. And we can now see how we got Christianity through that explosion of Christianity. And then there's this one sentence tagged on to his blessing that says, and a sword's going to pierce your own soul too, Mary. No parent should ever have to experience the death of their child, Mm -hmm. especially the death of Jesus. Again, we talk about this in future sermons and podcasts. The death of Jesus wasn't just death. It was humiliation. Yeah. And it was intended by the Romans not to be, they could have just killed him in the back office there, quick blow to the head. No, but they wanted to make a statement. It's a statement death. Yeah. It's humiliation. It's shame. And this era of second temple Judaism that the new Testament is set in Roman empire timeframe, the world is steeped in what we call a shame culture. Mm -hmm. And it'll be very important when we get to John chapter three. Yeah. John will weave shame culture into the narrative of the story. So I won't over comment on that too early. Right. But dying this shameful death was, I mean, again, this is the worst thing that could happen to you, not just to die, mm-hmm. but to die on a cross in open shame. That's the ultimate insult that the world could give to Jesus. Yeah. And Mary, when you see your son, when you stand at the foot of the cross, and know that Israel has rejected her king and know that the world has rejected your son, which is really the son of God. You're going to think that the lights have been turned out on the universe. It's going to be so black. Yeah. And for three days, it was pretty rough. Right. And you can imagine the heaviness of those three days. Absolutely. Until the resurrection. And, but all of it's being forecast here. No doubt. Mary looked back and said, Oh, you know, I remember, I remember they said these things, right. The narrative shifts quickly, and now the second character enters into this temple scene. Yeah. There was a prophet named Anna. Greek Anna is the same as Hebrew Hannah. Okay. And so what's interesting now is one of my soapbox issues where my peers often say to me, well, there are no women spiritual leaders in the Bible. 
There are no women who have the role of pastor. There are no women who have the role of prophet. There are no women officially titled women leaders in the Bible. It's a really ignorant reading of the Bible. I'm like on the second page of Luke, and I'm <laughs> yeah. already presented with a woman prophet. Yeah. A prophet was the highest position of the Old Testament, one who spoke with the voice of God, yeah. the covenant enforcer. And when you're talking about Jesus being a week old, this is still very much a continuation of that Old Testament world. That it, We haven't got out of the Old Testament world until the crucifixion and resurrection, right, really. Right. We're in it. And so what Luke has done is right out of the gate, he said, well, there's another. There's a woman prophet in the temple yeah. who is an old woman, much like this Simeon fellow, yeah. looking for God to do the biggest thing God's ever done. And she and God are, again, on the same wavelength here. Yeah. And when Luke has introduced her as Anna the prophet or Hannah the prophet in Hebrew, he has now tied her to the prophets of the Old Testament, yeah. which is your point. But he has also put her in the company of the women prophets of the Old Testament, yeah. again, about which many traditions are ignorant. Right. But clearly the Bible says that Miriam, this is Exodus 15, 20, prophesied. She's a prophet. It's a sister of Moses. Yeah. Deborah was a prophet. Deborah, Judges 4. Huldah. Second Kings chapter 22, yeah. Huldah was the most prominent Bible scholar of her day in a day when there were other famous prophets mm -hmm. living on the earth yeah. who wrote books in the Bible. When they wanted an explanation of a text, they did not go to those biblical authors. They went and to Huldah. They went to Huldah. And this woman became the Bible professor to the king and priesthood and said, here's how to interpret this scripture correctly and what you need to be doing societally and legally to comply with the word of God. Yeah. So then in Luke, when Anna shows up on the scene, she's not alone. She's not an isolated incident. No. She's not an exception to no. the rule. She's very much with her contemporaries of other prophets. Isaiah's wife is called a prophet in Isaiah chapter eight. There's a lot of female prophets and those are ones that are really clearly defined by scripture. Mm -hmm. The Jewish rabbis have also traditions. Yeah that have women prophets that are not as clearly articulated in our Bible. The rabbis add to the list that Sarah was a prophet and Hannah was a prophet and Abigail was a prophet and Esther was a prophet. So whether they're right or not, it's not the issue. The issue is there's women prophets and yeah. Luke says it so casually, like no one should be shocked about it. Right. It's just the way it was. So now this woman, Anna, who's a prophet, the daughter of Penuel, the tribe of Asher, she was very old, the scripture says. Well, let's see if we can get our arms wrapped around that. She had lived with her husband for seven years after their marriage. And then he died. Yeah. And she was a widow for 84, 84 years, more years. Yeah. is what it means. And she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. All right. So let's pause about that. So you've got someone who is been widowed 84 years. She was married for seven years. Yeah. 84 plus seven is 91. Average so age what, of someone who would have gotten married, when would that have been? There you go. Let's use the number 14. This seems about average for that time. If she got married at 14, that's 105. Yeah. So let's just say she's a, that's kind of the tradition on her, mm -hmm. that she was married maybe around 14 years old. So you've got a woman who's 105 now yeah. Yeah. who serves night and day in the temple, totally tuned into what God's doing. 
she comes up to Mary and Joseph at that very moment. Yeah, she sees the activity, the energy with, with Simeon. She gave thanks to God, and she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She preaches a sermon. Preaches a sermon that God has, the king you've been looking for, the salvation that was to come to Jerusalem, it's, he's here. This is the child. Yeah. It's again, it's just, fulfillment of prophecy. That's correct. And that's one of the roles of the prophet is to point back to previous prophecies and say, now Let's update the story. Now the story is updated. This is prophecy fulfilled. It's coming true right before your eyes. This is the baby. Now, no doubt Simeon and Anna were well known in the temple complex. Yeah. And they would have listened to her with full authority, with full yeah, credibility. Absolutely. Because she was the prophet of the temple. They know the devotion of this man and woman. Yeah. And so now these two characters are really part of the childhood story of Jesus. They have, before the Magi arrive, Mm -hmm. done a similar thing to what the Magi are going to do. Yeah. And what a beautiful cap on the Christmas story that we we leave off so often. Here's a brand new newborn baby, fresh into the world. One week into his life, he is proclaimed as the Messiah, the fulfillment of prophecy. That's a beautiful cap to the Christmas story, but we leave them off all the time in our retelling of it. When Mary and Joseph had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. Now Luke's fast-forwarding part of the story here together. Yeah. So what he's saying, though, basically, again, he weaves the obedience mm-hmm. motif in here. When they've done everything required by the law of the Lord. Luke is definitely trying, not trying, has definitely painted, overtly, yeah. overtly painted Mary and Joseph as two completely dedicated and loyal God followers. Faithful, yeah. These are not rebels against the system. Mm-hmm. These are people who are trying to please God and do the right thing and raise this child. Which as, makes sense. They were hand selected for this job. That is correct. Yeah. Now, so we're in this section right now. You outlined the sections in the preview of the timeline of the life of Christ. Mm -hmm. And you're still in that birth and childhood timeline area right now. Uh, There's one more story in this timeline that we need to talk about. Really the only adolescent childhood memory that we have with Jesus. Is the childhood story of him in the temple. In the temple, yeah. Separate from this one. I do love that the two stories that we have of Jesus' childhood are both temple pictures. Because really that's kind of a, a major element of what, what God's establishing you here. I think that the gospel writers are clearly trying to say to you, the temple is the central focus of G. I mean, yes. doing God's mission, doing God's will yes. is definitely why I'm here. Right. So we have this first picture of baby, baby Jesus in the temple, really being proclaimed for the first time publicly as Messiah. The second temple picture that we have of him in childhood, we'll talk about it in our next episode. We're going to go a little bit out of order when you follow it chronologically with the sermon series, and then we're going to end up being right on track. So last night you talked about the temptation and the baptism. baptism of Jesus. This next Sunday, Pastor Josh is going to be talking about Jesus' first uh, sermon that he preaches. And uh, that's going to be really exciting. And not only that, how then the follow-up of that sermon is him bringing in a whole batch of his first disciples that are really going to make up the New Testament. But for our next podcast episode, we're going to go back in time to his childhood once again. We're going to see the only time that we really see child Jesus talking and acting out the will of God. It's going to be a great time together. We can't wait to continue talking about the life of Christ because this is 
so integral to who we are. We are not Christians without Christ. And I'm excited to see how the life of Christ and how really studying the life of the early church and seeing how Jesus' life impacted the lives of so many people when he was here on earth, how that then can change our lives and how we can be better followers of him the more that we know him and the better we understand who he is. And I'm excited for you all to be a part of those conversations. So again, as you listen, as you study on your own, we want you to tell us what you're thinking. Tell us stories about ways that this podcast has affected you or helped you learn and grow. Tell us things that maybe you think it would be beneficial to the conversation. Ask us questions because we love when you are all engaged in the Cornerstone Conversations together. So again, text 817-809-3040 and together we can continue now season two of our Cornerstone Conversations.